Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. My name is Frank Marlowe. I'm the Dean of Academics here. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Institute, there might be a few of you, we are a graduate school of international relations and statecraft. We have five master's degrees. We have 17 certificates. We have a doctoral program. If you have any questions about any of those programs or are interested in learning more about our programs, please feel free to approach me or anyone in the lobby, and we'd all be very happy to help you out. Let me tell you, it's a, a great honor today to be able to introduce uh, Michael C. Maybach. Michael is a seasoned professional in global business diplomacy. He's an advisor mm -hmm. to nonprofit organizations, and he's a supporter of a number of civic causes. From 2003 to 2012, he was the president and CEO of the European American Business Council, which is a group of 75 multinational uh, companies. From 1983 until 2001, he was the vice president of global government affairs for the Intel Corporation. At Intel, he worked closely with its founders, uh, Dr. Robert Noyce, the inventor, uh, inventor of the integrated circuit, uh, Dr. Gordon Moore, known for Moore's Law, and Dr. Andy Grove, who was Time Man of the Year in at Intel, he built a team of 150 professionals around the world to advance public policy, to enhance trade, job, and wealth creation. Today, he is the founder and director of the Center for the Electoral College, which we'll obviously talk about today. He's also clearly an underachiever in that he has earned seven university degrees, <laughs> one of which was granted here by the Institute of World Politics, and we're very proud to call him one of our alums. I don't know how he did seven of those, but I am I stopped at three. Yeah, there's plenty. Uh, while earning his first degree, he was elected to the, to the DeKalb County Board in his native state of Illinois, becoming the first person elected to public office under the age of 21 in American history. No idea. Very interesting. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please help me introduce Michael Mayer. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you. Is this working? Yeah, it works. Okay, good. I'm going to, if you don't mind, walk around a little bit. Thank you very much for coming. I assume that you're here because you care very much about our republic and its success, and uh, you want to know uh, why the founders developed this very unique part of our Constitution. Charles Black, who's a former professor of law at Harvard Law School, once wrote that to remove the Electoral College so back in 1970, when the Congress was considering removing the Electoral College, would be the single most radical change <coughs> in the Constitution in American history. And we're going to talk about that institution today, about a 45-minute talk, and then your questions are very welcome. I want to start out with a question about our European friends. The European Union has how many countries? Since 28 until the UK, 27, 27 as of next year. How many of those countries, now I, um, uh, just raise your hand if you know these, because I ask questions, just raise your hand rather than we have six people answer. 
how many of those countries have popular election of their head of government? Who knows the answer to that, of the 28? The answer is two. Cyprus and France. All the rest elect their head of government through their parliament. That's the 28. This is the Electoral College of Great Britain. In other words, Boris Johnson was never on the ballot in Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland, only in England in his own borough. This is the Electoral College of Germany. The parliament elects Mrs. Merkel. She was never on the ballot across their country. This is our Electoral College. 50 states have the electors meet the first Tuesday of the, of the, of the month of December every four years. So we have 50 elections, if you will, much more democratic than most Japanese. Mr. Trudeau had just re-elected in Canada. He didn't serve in the, he didn't stand on the ballot in any place but his own constituency. Now, Winston Churchill said, the further you can look backwards, the further you can look forward. He said that because on that? Because the nature of the human condition never changes. We love Shakespeare because the moral lessons still apply to our day, 600 years later. The founders believed that. That's why they're classical conservatives. A classical conservative is a person that believes man's nature is broken, problematic, always has been, always will be, so you have to guard against the problems of our nature. They, were, they studied history because they were going to create a new government. They had defeated the world's most powerful military, and now they were going to create a new government, and they wanted to get it right. These were very bright people, very ambitious, and they wanted to go down in history as successful and create a new republic. They studied Athens and why it fell because of the poor leadership of the elites, costly wars, the Peloponnesian Wars, very famous by... Thucydides, who was the defeated general, that's why he had time on his hands to write that book, which I studied here. Um, Plato came to write, tyranny naturally arises out of democracy. Rome went from a republic for 500 years to an empire. Augustus did away with the Senate's power. There was a Senate in, in the uh, Roman Public, ending the representative government of Rome and becoming Rome's first emperor. The Senate still met, but the emperor had all of the real power. They read these things in history. They also read their lock. One of the three portraits on Jefferson's wall in Monticello is of Locke and his second treatise. We get from Locke very important ideas. The divine right of kings is no divine right at all. Social contract theory, which is uh, representation. Uh, men have natural rights, life, liberty, property. Men have the right to revolution against tyranny. And we're endowed by our creator with our rights. And that's where Jefferson and other founders got this idea that we're endowed by our creator. And, of course, Common Sense and Thomas Paine also comes to mind as a book they read. A very, very, very important book was written by this Frenchman, Montesquieu. Uh, in 1748, so the founders were very young men, and it's called The Spirit of the Laws. And he 
studied why democracies fail, large and small, and his conclusion was they failed because power was concentrated and majorities will tyrannize the minorities. And so he came up with the idea, in a formal sense, of separation of powers to protect the minority from the majority by way of system of checks and balances. And you can see from these two books, the founders took key ideas, as well as from others, the Scottish Enlightenment, etc. Now, we were operating uh, from the beginning days of the Revolutionary War until 1787, Articles of Confederation, lots of weaknesses. There were trade wars between the states. The Congress could not tax people or the states. Uh, we had Shays' Rebellion, which was one of the reasons why we had the Constitutional Convention. Uh, the, the Congress could not raise an army. We had no national currency. There were no federal courts under the Articles of Confederation. It was really a very, very weak federation of 13 almost sovereign states. And there was no leader. There was no president. All right. And so we had really the ingredients of legislative tyranny, which was very real among the 13 states. Lots of problems with legislative tyranny in the early days of the early constitutions. And so in the summer of 1787, Madison convinced George Washington to chair a constitutional convention. And uh, because Washington did attend and chair it, that's why most people said this must be serious because he was the great man who had won the war and he had such a high reputation. So in February 1787, they uh, invited delegates to come. And by May, they had all arrived into Philadelphia, which was the largest city in the United States at the time. 55 delegates, 29 had college degrees, 34 were lawyers, 24 were serving in the Continental Congress, like James Wilson, and 21 were military officers under Washington. So you had almost half of them former officers under Washington, and the other half were in the Continental Congress. So these were people well-educated. I mean, when you have 29 of them had college degrees in those days, my parents didn't have college degrees. Uh, you can see how unique they were. They also brought with them this line from the Declaration of Independence, and that is that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. And they had in mind, if we're going to institute a government, it's to secure rights. It isn't to control people so much. It's to secure our rights by making sure we have specific and reasonable and good government. Madison wrote, accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elected, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. So here you have Montesquieu writ large, if you will. We cannot have power concentrated. Jefferson, in his first inaugural, of course, he was during the Constitutional Convention ambassador <coughs> to France, wrote in his inaugural, bear in mind this sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable. That the minority possess their equal rights with equal laws must protect and to violate would be oppression. Okay? Matter of fact, people like George Mason from Virginia opposed the Constitution because it did not have a Bill of Rights. And Madison and Hamilton and others promised certain anti-federalists we would. In 1791, we did get a Bill of Rights. It was the first thing Madison worked on in the House of Representatives 
when he came to power, one person said to him, well, now that you've won and you have your constitution, why bother with the Bill of Rights? And he said, because it's important people, I promise, are going to get it done. Ben Franklin described democracy as two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. <laughs> Liberty is a well-armed lamb <clears throat> contesting the vote. So this constitution-making, uh, that is some of the background of the constitution-making. The founders had three goals in the Constitutional Convention, I would suggest. Avoid tier majority tyranny by federalism, which is dividing power between the national government and states, and the checks and balances within those systems. So three branches in Richmond, Virginia, three branches in Washington, D.C. Number two, balance large and small state as well as regional interests. This was very, very important. The largest population was in Virginia, it included West Virginia at the time, and Massachusetts, which included the state of Maine at the time, and Pennsylvania, which had the largest city, and New York. Those were the four big states of population. Next was North Carolina. But the other eight or nine were very, uh, Georgia only had 75,000 people, and Virginia had 750,000. So they had 10 times as many people as the people in Virginia, in Georgia. And therefore, this balance has to be kept in mind on the Electoral College issue, of course. And then finally, create an independent, energetic president. And this is the other key. To understand the Electoral College, these founders wanted the president to be independent, unlike the Prime Minister of England, which they had dealt with, of the parliament. Because they had seen what parliamentary majority tyranny was like, and they didn't like it. And when somebody at the Constitutional Convention said, Let's have the Congress elect the president, Madison and others said. That's what we have in London, and we don't want that here. And the others, other one stood up and said, well, why don't we have majority vote? And they said, yes, it'll always be a Virginian or somebody from Philadelphia or New York, and my state will never have a chance. Okay. The Electoral College supports all three of these goals. <clears throat> so in summary, they wanted federalism, robust, federalism and not a unitary state as we find in France and in Cyprus, by the way. The Federalist Papers, as you know, 85 essays written for 18-month period during the debates because we had 13 conventions where people debated this constitution that was adopted by those elected delegates to those conventions. The mindset of the founders in 1787 on selecting a president, and I'm going through this part because to understand the Electoral College, you have to understand what they're trying to accomplish in getting a president a certain way. An essential check on the tyranny of the majority, an independent executive essential to separation of powers. The president must not be chosen by Congress. They created the Electoral College over popular election to curb passions. Remember, democracy turns into tyranny and mob rule, if you will. <coughs> Of course, you just think of the, the French Revolution, which was just a year away, and you can see what how democracy becomes so bloody. They invented the guillotine for the French Revolution because they were killing so many people they had to mechanize. Pure popular democracy uh, is a source of tyranny and the enemy of freedom. So these were republicans in the political science sense of the term, not democrats in the political science sense of the term. So, of course, we all know they had the three branches of government, and we want the House and Senate always to do battle. Remember, the Senate is the states, 
And originally, the senators were appointed by state legislatures until 1912, and the House by the people. So we had the states and the people with some fiction here. And this is one way to avoid majority tyranny inside the Congress. So we wanted, and Washington would write to people and say, one of the problems of the articles is there is no leader that can get these states to do anything, to stand up and say, go that way. And of course, he understood what executive leadership was about because he did that for seven years uh, in, the, in the war against England, Federal 70. So now we're going to go through a few Federalist Papers. So if you're interested in further study, I'm going to give you the four Federalist Papers, 39, uh, 51, 68, and 70. Those are the four. So the first two by Madison, 39 and 51, and of course the 10th, which goes along with the 51st by Madison, and then Hamilton wrote 68 and 70 about the Supreme Court and the executive branch. So what uh, Hamilton says in Federal 70 is, there is an idea, which is not without its advocates, that a vigorous executive is inconsistent with the genius of Republican government. However, energy in the executive is a leading character in the definition of good government. Energy in the executive. It is essential to the protection of the community against foreign tax. It is not less essential to the steady administration of the laws, to the protection of property against those irregular and high-handed combinations which sometimes interrupt the ordinary course of justice. To the security of liberty against the enterprises and assaults of ambition, of faction, and of anarchy. A feeble executive implies a feeble execution of government. A feeble execution is but another phrase for bad execution, and a government ill-executed, whatever it may be in theory, must in practice be a bad government. So in debates, always give the other person's argument. In this case, if you don't want an energetic executive, let's have a feeble one. How do you like that? This was a very powerful rhetorical tool that he used. Madison, in 51, talks about having a president with a will of his own. In 51, he's talking about the balance of competing interests, including with the three branches of government. In order to lay a due foundation for that separate and distinct exercise of the different powers of government, which to a certain extent is admitted on all hands to be essential to the preservation of liberty, it is evident that each department should have a will of its own and consequently be so constituted that the members of each should have as little agency as possible in the appointment of members of the other. In other words, the Congress isn't going to appoint the president, the president doesn't appoint the Congress, and in the Supreme Court case, the president does appoint the Supreme Court, but guess who gets to ratify those nominations? The states. Not the House, the states. And that's why the Senate only votes on that, because, again, the founders are involving the states. This is a nation of states. And so Rhode Island gets two votes, just like Pennsylvania and Virginia, on the Supreme Court issue, et cetera. So you see already uh, what they're trying to do is get all the states to see they have a role in this government, not just mere population. It is equally evident that the members of each department should be as little dependent as possible on those of the others for the emoluments annexed to their offices. Were the executive magistrate, the president, or the judges, not independent of the legislature in this particular, their independence and every other would be merely nominal, but the great security against the gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist 
in closeness to the other. Now, very often my friends, my neighbors, whatever, say, isn't it terrible we have Grinlock in Washington? Oh, they just can't get any Grinlock in Washington. And every night I thank God for Grinlock in Washington. <laughs> because this system was designed for Grinlock. Get used to it, please. It is a blessing. It is a blessing because otherwise we will have a tyranny of one part of our government. The fact that the president can veto, that the Senate has to can veto the Supreme Court nominations, and on and on, and impeachment. We just had an impeachment trial. The House and, and Senate can impeach the president. These are all part of this system of checks and balances. Montesquieu on steroids, right downtown Washington. Nobody does it better in the world than we following Montesquieu. Now, Federal 51 goes on to say, and I love this quote, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. When Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich were going at it, I said, that's Federalist 51. Those two bright, ambitious guys are back and forth struggling for power. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? They really understood the broken nature of people and the fact that uh, abuses of government will happen. We have to have checks on that if we want to be free. And then he says another famous thing, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. No government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls of government would be necessary. In framing the government which is to be administered by men over men, men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, the rule, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. To control itself. This is the hard work of self-government. It's not only rule, it's easy to rule people. You got a military, you can tax them to death, etc. It's another thing to control itself. And that's why the House controls the Senate, the Congress controls the president, on and on and on. In Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. The remedy for this inconveniency, so the, the, the legislative tyranny, is to divide the legislature into different branches, the House and Senate, to render them by different modes of election and different principles of action as little connected with each other as possible. The House is two-year elections. The Senate is six. The House is by population. The Senate is by the state, two so Rhode Island gets two senators, and so does California. Okay, So they've totally mixed up the system, so there is no harmony between them. In Republican government, the legislative oh, sorry, it may even be necessary to guard against dangerous encroachments by still further precautions. An absolute negative on the legislature appears at first view to be the natural defense from which the magistrates should be armed. That's the veto. Okay. So now you're getting a deeper sense Hamilton in Federalist 68, if the manner, he's talking about the Electoral College, so this is his defense of the Electoral College, Federalist 68, if the manner of it be not perfect, it is at least excellent. And I bet you when he wrote that, he was happy. It's at least an excellent solution. The Electoral College was decided on the last day of the Constitutional Convention. They'd given the least thought to how to elect the president. And it was the last thing they did because they were, they're, their debates hadn't happened and the thoughts weren't developed. So they came up with this 
in just a few days on the way out of town. The sense of the people should operate in the choice of the person to whom so important a trust to be confided. That's the president. Not to any pre-established body. In other words, not elected by the House or the Senate, but to men chosen by the people for special purpose and the particular, at particular juncture, which is the time in the nation's life. It was equally desirable that the immediate election should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station and acting under circumstances favorable to the deliberation. This is the electors now, not the population, but the presidential electors that we all next November will elect in our states. And to a judicious combination of all the reasons and inducements which were proper to govern their choice. A small number of persons selected by their fellow citizens from the general mass will most likely possess the information and discernment requisite to such complication, complicated investigations. Remember, there was no TV, there was no radio, there was no internet, there was no mass communication. It's almost impossible for people in Virginia to know anything about anybody in Maine, or Massachusetts at the time, or um, in uh, North Carolina. How could they know? Only very successful people <coughs> who had sort of a, a bigger view of the world, had been traveled and, and well-read and well-educated, people like the founders, would really listen to the popular vote and then to the extent that a change needed to be made, that they would make some judgment. What if a person had, in New York who was elected had died? But it wasn't on the ni nightly news. I don't, these, these men of stature might know about that news more quickly, or they might know that my gosh, they're actually in the, under the payroll of the British government or something, and that's been investigated, et cetera, et cetera. So they wanted to have sort of a final check on popular vote itself. To continue with 68, it was also peculiarly desirable to afford as little opportunity as possible to tumult and disorder. Precautions which have been so happily concerted in the system promise an effectual security against this mission. The choice of several, in other words, there's, there's lots of electors in each state. Several to form an intermediate body of electors will be much less apt to convulse the community with any extraordinary violent movements than the choice of one elector who himself be the final object of the public's wishes. So they divide power again among the electors who then have to come to this conclusion. And as the electors chosen in each state are to assemble and vote in the state in which they're chosen, this detached and divided situation will expose them much less to heats and firmaments, so passion, which might be communicated from them to the people than if they were all to be convened at one time in one place. Remember I told you our electoral college happens in 50 capitals and not just one like they do in London or in uh, finally, on 68, nothing was more to be desired than that every practical obstacle should be exposed to cabal, intrigue, and corruption. Remember, they were worried. Um, in Federalist, I think it's 30, 35, Hamilton writes, the Europeans would, um, would make us, make themselves to be the mistress of the world and um, regulate us into a new form of tyranny. They didn't like European meddling. This is way before the Monroe Doctrine. And they feared that the European governments would, uh, would infiltrate. And talking about that these days, 
uh, these elections. These most deadly adversaries of Republican government might naturally have been expected to make their approaches from more than one quarter, but chiefly from the design of foreign powers to gain an improper ascendance in our councils. But the convention has guarded against all danger of this sort, the convention being the electoral college system, with the most provident and judicious attention. They have not made the appointment of the president to depend on any pre-existing bodies of men who might be tampered with beforehand to prostitute their votes, but they have referred it in the first instance to immediate act of the people. Remember, next November, the electors in each state are chosen, and four weeks later, that didn't give you a lot of time to pay them off, four weeks later, they're voting in the capitals, right? They're not members of the legislature. They're not members of Congress. They haven't been uh, corrupted by, by foreigners or other people. Um, so, but they have referred it in the first instance to immediate act of people in America to be exerted in the choice of persons for the temporary and sole purpose of making the appointment. Those are the electors. Once you vote as elector, you're out of office then. And they have excluded from eligibility to this trust all those from situation might be suspected of too great a devotion to the president office. So no senator, no congressman, no other person holding public office under the United States can be an elector, can be a, thus without corrupting the body of the people, the immediate agents in the election will at least enter upon this task free of any senator by sinister vices. So they wanted these to be citizens from among us who raise their hand and say, for example, I'm running as a presidential elector in Alexandria, Virginia. I put my name on the ballot and in May I will be chosen or not chosen by my party to do that as a presidential elector hold no public office. The business of corruption, when it is to embrace, well, let me skip down here, reading an awful lot. And the executive should be independent of its continuation in office and all but the people themselves. He might otherwise be tempted to sacrifice his duty to compliance for those who favor what is necessary, the duration of his official consequence. This advantage will also be secured by making his re-election depend on a special body of representatives deputed or deputized by the society for the single purpose of making the choice. So these electors don't work for the president, aren't public officials. Finally, electing the president involved the states. Remember we had 13 states, most of them small, nine pretty small. Georgia, 75,000 people, for example. So in the popular election of the president, there were four ways they wanted to engage the states. Move the locus of president election out of the nation's capital. It wasn't a national vote, it was a state vote. This fits with the new compound Republican, as Madison called it in Federalist 51. The disaggregation of the presidential election among the states best ensured that the president would have continental reputation, Federal 68, and by thus involving the states, the people, and the state leaders feel they have an active role at stake in choosing the head of government. Every state capital will be where the president is elected, and electors will come from all 13 states. Finally, from Federalist 51, there are two considerations particularly applicable to the federal system of America, which place that system in a very interesting point of view. First, in a single republic, all power surrendered by the people is submitted to the administration of a single government. And the usurpations are guarded against by a division of government into distinct and separate 
it's checks and balances. In the compound republic of America, the power surrendered by the people is first divided, divided between two distinct governments, and then the portion allotted to each subdivide among distinct and separate departments. A woman asked him, Dr. Franklin, this is at the end of the Constitutional Convention, what have you given us? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. A republic if you can keep it. Maybe with that we should conclude, but I'll be around if you have other questions.